Elko's managers still regard this experience as one of the most painful in their careers. They learned that people in the front line care as much about the proper process as those at the top. By violating fair process in making and rolling out strategies, managers can turn their best employees into their worst, earning their distrust of and resistance to the very strategy they depend on them to execute. But if managers practice fair process, the worst employees can turn into the best and can execute even difficult strategic shifts with their willing commitment while building their trust. Why does fair process matter? Why is fair process important in shaping people's attitudes and behavior? Specifically, why does the observance or violation of fair process in strategy making have the power to make or break a strategy's execution? It all comes down to intellectual and emotional recognition. Emotionally, individuals seek recognition of their value, not as labor, personnel, or human resources, but as human beings who are treated with full respect and dignity and appreciated for their individual worth, regardless of hierarchical level. Intellectually, individuals seek recognition that their ideas are sought after and given thoughtful reflection, and that others think enough of their intelligence to explain their thinking to them. Such frequently cited expressions in our interviews as, that goes for everyone I know, or every person wants to feel, and constant references to people and human beings reinforce the point that managers must see the nearly universal value of the intellectual and emotional recognition that fair process conveys. Intellectual and Emotional Recognition Theory Using fair process in strategy-making is strongly linked to both intellectual and emotional recognition. It proves through action that there is an eagerness to trust and cherish the individual as well as deep-seated confidence in the individual's knowledge, talents, and expertise. When individuals feel recognized for their intellectual worth, they are willing to share their knowledge. In fact, they feel inspired to impress and confirm the expectation of their intellectual value, suggesting active ideas and knowledge sharing. Similarly, when individuals are treated with emotional recognition, they feel emotionally tied to the strategy and inspired to give their all. Indeed, in Frederick Hertzberg's classic study on motivation, recognition was found to inspire strong intrinsic motivation causing people to go beyond the call of duty and engage in voluntary cooperation. Hence, to the extent that fair process judgments convey intellectual and emotional recognition, people will better apply their knowledge and expertise, as well as their voluntary efforts to cooperate for the organization's success in executing strategy. However, there is a flip side to this that is deserving of equal, if not more, attention. The violation of fair process, and with it the violation of recognizing individuals' intellectual and emotional worth. The observed pattern of thought and behavior can be summarized as follows. If individuals are not treated as though their knowledge is valued, they will feel intellectual indignation and will not share their ideas and expertise. Rather, they will hoard their best thinking and creative ideas, preventing new insights from seeing the light of day. What's more, they will reject others' intellectual worth as well, 
It's as if they were saying, You don't value my ideas, so I don't value your ideas, nor do I trust in or care about the strategic decisions you've reached. Similarly, to the extent that people's emotional worth is not recognized, they will feel angry and will not invest their energy in their actions. Rather, they will drag their feet and apply counter-efforts, including sabotage, as in the case of Elko's Chester plant. This often leads employees to push for rolling back strategies that have been imposed unfairly, even when the strategies themselves were good ones, critical to the company's success or beneficial to employees and managers themselves. Lacking trust in the strategy-making process, people lack trust in the resulting strategies. Such is the emotional power that fair process can provoke. Fair process and blue ocean strategy. Commitment, trust, and voluntary cooperation are not merely attitudes or behaviors. They are intangible capital. When people have trust, they have heightened confidence in one another's intentions and actions. When they have commitment, they are even willing to override personal self-interest in the interests of the company. If you ask any company that has created and successfully executed a blue ocean strategy, managers will be quick to rattle off how important this intangible capital is to their success. Similarly, managers from companies that have failed in executing blue ocean strategies will point out that the lack of this capital contributed to their failure. These companies were not able to orchestrate strategic shifts because they lacked people's trust and commitment. Commitment, trust, and voluntary cooperation allow companies to stand apart in the speed, quality, and consistency of their execution and to implement strategic shifts fast at low cost. The question companies wrestle with is how to create trust, commitment, and voluntary cooperation deep in the organization. You don't do it by separating strategy formulation from execution. Although this disconnect may be a hallmark of most companies' practice, it is also a hallmark of slow and questionable implementation and mechanical follow-through at best. Of course, traditional incentives of power and money, carrots and sticks, help, but they fall short of inspiring human behavior that goes beyond outcome-driven self-interest. Where behavior cannot be monitored with certainty, there is still plenty of room for foot-dragging and sabotage. The exercise of fair process gets around this dilemma. By organizing the strategy formulation process around the principles of fair process, you can build execution into strategy-making from the start. With fair process, people tend to be committed to support the resulting strategy, even when it is viewed as not favorable or at odds with their perception of what is strategically correct for their unit. People realize that compromises and sacrifices are necessary in building a strong company. They accept the need for short-term personal sacrifices in order to advance the long-term interests of the corporation. This acceptance is conditional, however, on the presence of fair process. Whatever the context in which a company's blue ocean strategy is executed, be it working with a joint venture partner to outsource component manufacturing, reorienting the sales force, transforming the manufacturing process, relocating a company's call center from the United States to India, we have consistently observed this dynamic at work. Chapter 9 Conclusion The Sustainability and Renewal of Blue Ocean Strategy 
Creating blue oceans is not a static achievement, but a dynamic process. Once a company creates a blue ocean and its powerful performance consequences are known, sooner or later imitators appear on the horizon. The question is, how soon or late will they come? Put differently, how easy or difficult is blue ocean strategy to imitate? As the company and its early imitators succeed and expand the blue ocean, more companies eventually jump in. This raises a related question. When should a company reach out to create another blue ocean? In this concluding chapter, we address the issues of the sustainability and renewal of blue ocean strategy. Barriers to Imitation A blue ocean strategy brings with it considerable barriers to imitation. Some of these are operational, and others are cognitive. More often than not, a blue ocean strategy will go without credible challenges for 10 to 15 years, as was the case with Cirque du Soleil, Southwest Airlines, Federal Express, The Home Depot, Bloomberg, and CNN, for starters. This sustainability can be traced to the following imitation barriers rooted in blue ocean strategy. A value innovation move does not make sense based on conventional strategic logic. When CNN was introduced, for example, NBC, CBS, and ABC ridiculed the idea of 24-hour, seven-day, real-time news without star broadcasters. CNN was referred to as chicken noodle news by the industry. Ridicule does not inspire rapid imitation. Brand image conflict prevents companies from imitating a blue ocean strategy. The blue ocean strategy of the body shop, for example, which shunned beautiful models, promises of eternal beauty and youth, and expensive packaging, left major cosmetic houses the world over actionless for years, because imitation would signal an invalidation of their current business models. Natural monopoly blocks imitation when the size of a market cannot support another player. For example, the Belgian cinema company Kinepolis created the first megaplex in Europe in the city of Brussels, and has not been imitated in more than fifteen years despite its enormous success. The reason is that the size of Brussels could not support a second megaplex, which would cause both Kinepolis and its imitator to suffer. Patents or legal permits block imitation. The high volume generated by value innovation leads to rapid cost advantages, placing potential imitators at an ongoing cost disadvantage. The huge economies of scale in purchasing enjoyed by Walmart, for example, have significantly discouraged other companies from imitating its blue ocean strategy. Network externalities also block companies from easily and credibly imitating a blue ocean strategy, much as eBay enjoys in the online auction market. In short, the more customers eBay has online, the more attractive the auction site becomes for both sellers and buyers of wares, creating scant incentive for buyers to switch to a potential imitator. Because imitation often requires companies to make substantial changes to their existing business practices, politics often kick in, delaying for years a company's commitment to imitate a blue ocean strategy. When Southwest Airlines, for example, created a service that offered the speed of air travel with the cost and flexibility of driving, imitating this blue ocean strategy would have meant major revisions in routing planes, retraining staff, and changing marketing and pricing, not to mention culture. Significant changes that the politics of few companies can bear in the short term. 
When a company offers a leap in value, it rapidly earns brand buzz and a loyal following in the marketplace. Even large advertising budgets by an aggressive imitator rarely have the strength to overtake the brand buzz earned by the value innovator. Microsoft, for example, has been trying for years to dislodge into its value innovation Quicken. More than ten years out, despite all its efforts and investment, it has not been able to do so. The barriers are high. This is why we have seldom observed rapid imitation of Blue Ocean strategy. In addition, Blue Ocean strategy is a systems approach that requires not only getting each strategic element right, but also aligning them in an integral system to deliver value innovation. Imitating such a system is not an easy feat. When to value innovate again? Eventually, however, almost every Blue Ocean strategy will be imitated. As imitators try to grab a share of your Blue Ocean, you typically launch offenses to defend your hard-earned customer base. But imitators often persist. Obsessed with hanging on to market share, you may fall into the trap of competing, racing to beat the new competition. Over time, the competition, and not the buyer, may come to occupy the center of your strategic thought and actions. If you stay on this course, the basic shape of your value curve will begin to converge with those of the competition. To avoid the trap of competing, you need to monitor value curves on the strategy canvas. Monitoring value curves signals when to value innovate and when not to. It alerts you to reach out for another blue ocean when your value curve begins to converge with those of the competition. It also keeps you from pursuing another blue ocean when there is still a huge profit stream to be collected from your current offering. When the company's value curve still has focus, divergence, and a compelling tagline, you should resist the temptation to value innovate again and instead should focus on lengthening, widening, and deepening your rent stream through operational improvements and geographical expansion to achieve maximum economies of scale and market coverage. You should swim as far as possible in the blue ocean, making yourself a moving target, distancing yourself from your early imitators and discouraging them in the process. The aim here is to dominate the blue ocean over your imitators for as long as possible. As rivalry intensifies and total supply exceeds demand, bloody competition commences and the ocean will turn red. As competitors' value curves converge toward yours, you should begin reaching out for another value innovation to create a new blue ocean. Hence, by charting your value curve on the strategy canvas and intermittently replotting your competitors' value curves versus your own, you will be able to visually see the degree of imitation, and hence of value curve convergence and the extent to which your blue ocean is turning red. The body shop, for example, dominated the blue ocean it had created for more than a decade. The company, however, is now in the middle of a bloody red ocean with declining performance. It did not reach out for another value innovation when competitors' value curves converged with its own. Similarly, Yellowtail is swimming in the clear blue waters of new market space. It has made the competition irrelevant and is enjoying strong, profitable growth as a result. However, the test of Casella Wine's long-run profitable growth will be its ability to value innovate again when imitators compete both aggressively and credibly with converging value curves. The six principles of Blue Ocean strategy proposed in this book should serve as essential pointers for every company thinking about its future strategy if it aspires to lead the increasingly overcrowded business world. 
This is not to suggest that companies will suddenly stop competing, or that the competition will suddenly come to a halt. On the contrary, the competition will be more present and will remain a critical factor of the market reality. What we suggest is that to obtain high performance in this overcrowded market, companies should go beyond competing for share to creating blue oceans. Because blue and red oceans have always coexisted, however, practical reality demands that companies succeed in both oceans and master the strategies for both. But because companies already understand how to compete in red oceans, what they need to learn is how to make the competition irrelevant. This book aims to help balance the scales so that formulating and executing blue ocean strategy can become as systematic and actionable as competing in the red oceans of known market space. Appendix A, a sketch of the historical pattern of blue ocean creation. At the risk of oversimplification, here we present a snapshot overview of the history of three American industries, automobiles, computers, and movie theaters, from the perspective of major product and service offerings that opened new market space and generated significant new demand. This review intends to be neither comprehensive in its coverage nor exhaustive in its content. Its aim is limited to identifying the common strategic elements across key blue ocean offerings. U.S. industries are chosen here because they represent the largest and least regulated free market during our study period. Although the review is only a sketch of the historical pattern of blue ocean creation, several patterns stand out across these three representative industries. There is no permanently excellent industry. The attractiveness of all industries rose and fell over the study period. There are no permanently excellent companies. Companies like industries rose and fell over time. These first two findings both confirm and add further evidence that permanently excellent companies and industries do not exist. A key determinant of whether an industry or a company was on a rising trajectory of strong, profitable growth was the strategic move of blue ocean creation. The creation of blue oceans was a key catalyst in setting an industry on an upward growth and profit trajectory. It was also a pivotal determinant driving a company's rise in profitable growth, as well as its fall when another company gained the lead and created a new blue ocean. Blue oceans were created by both industry incumbents and new entrants, challenging the lore that startups have natural advantages over established companies in creating new market space. Moreover, the blue oceans created by incumbents were usually within their core businesses. In fact, most blue oceans are created from within, not beyond red oceans of existing boundaries. Issues of perceived cannibalization or creative destruction for established companies proved to be exaggerated. Blue oceans created profitable growth for every company launching them, startups and incumbents alike. The creation of blue oceans was not about technology innovation per se. Sometimes leading-edge technology was present, but often it was not a defining feature of blue oceans. This was true even when the industry under examination was technologically intensive, such as computers. Rather, the key defining feature of blue oceans was value innovation, innovation that was linked to what buyers value. The creation of blue oceans did more than contribute to a strong, profitable growth. This strategic move exercised a strong positive effect on establishing a company's standing brand name in buyers' minds. 
Let's now turn to these three representative industries to let the history of blue ocean creation speak for itself. Here we begin with the auto industry, a central form of transportation in the developed world. The automobile industry. The U.S. auto industry dates back to 1893, when the Duryea brothers launched the first one-cylinder auto in the United States. At the time, the horse and buggy was the primary means of U.S. transportation. Soon after the auto's U.S. debut, there were hundreds of auto manufacturers building custom-made automobiles in the country. The autos of the time were a luxurious novelty. One model even offered electric curlers in the back seat for on-the-go primping. They were unreliable and expensive, costing around $1,500, twice the average annual family income. And they were enormously unpopular. Anti-car activists tore up roads, ringed parked cars with barbed wire, and organized boycotts of car-driving businessmen and politicians. Public resentment of the automobile was so great that even future President Woodrow Wilson weighed in, saying, Nothing has spread socialistic feeling more than the automobile, a picture of the arrogance of wealth. Literary Digest suggested, The ordinary horseless carriage is at present a luxury for the wealthy, and although its price will probably fall in the future, it will never, of course, come into as common use as the bicycle. The industry, in short, was small and unattractive. Henry Ford, however, didn't believe it had to be this way. The Model T. In 1908, while America's 500 automakers built custom-made novelty automobiles, Henry Ford introduced the Model T. He called it the car for the great multitude constructed of the best materials. Although it came in only one color, black, and one model, the Model T was reliable, durable, and easy to fix, and it was priced so that the majority of Americans could afford one. In 1908, the first Model T cost $850, half the price of existing automobiles. In 1909, it dropped to $609, and by 1924, it was down to $290. In comparison, the price of a horse-driven carriage, the car's closest alternative at the time, was around $400. A 1909 sales brochure proclaimed, Watch the Ford go by high-priced quality in a low-priced car. Ford's success was underpinned by a profitable business model. By keeping the cars highly standardized and offering limited options and interchangeable parts, Ford's revolutionary assembly line replaced skilled craftsmen with ordinary unskilled laborers who worked one small task faster and more efficiently. Cutting the time to make a Model T from 21 days to 4 days and cutting labor hours by 60%. With lower costs, Ford was able to charge a price that was acceptable to the mass market. Sales of the Model T exploded. Ford's market share surged from 9% in 1908 to 61% in 1921. And by 1923, a majority of American households owned an automobile. Ford's Model T exploded the size of the automobile industry, creating a huge blue ocean. So great was the blue ocean Ford created that the Model T replaced the horse-drawn carriage as the primary means of transport in the United States. General Motors By 1924, the car had become an essential household item, and the wealth of the average American household had grown. 
That year, General Motors, GM, unveiled a line of automobiles that would create a new blue ocean in the auto industry. In contrast to Ford's functional one-color single-model strategy, GM introduced a car for every purse and purpose, a strategy devised by Chairman Alfred Sloan to appeal to the emotional dimensions of the U.S. mass market, or what Sloan called the mass class market. Whereas Ford stuck with the functional horseless carriage concept of the car, GM made the car fun, exciting, comfortable, and fashionable. GM factories pumped out a broad array of models, with new colors and styles updated every year. The annual car model created new demand as buyers began to trade up for fashion and comfort. Because cars were replaced more frequently, the used car market was also formed. Demand for GM's fashionable and emotionally charged cars soared. From 1926 to 1950, the total number of cars sold in the United States increased from 2 million to 7 million a year, and General Motors increased its overall market share from 20% to 50%, while Ford's fell from 50% to 20%. But the rapid growth in the U.S. auto industry unleashed by this new blue ocean could not last forever. Following GM's surging success, Ford and Chrysler jumped into the blue ocean GM had created, and the big three pursued the common strategy of launching new car models yearly and hitting an emotional chord with consumers by building a wide range of car styles to meet various lifestyles and needs. Slowly, bloody competition began as the big three imitated and matched one another's strategies. Collectively, they captured more than 90% of the U.S. auto market. A period of complacency set in. Small, fuel-efficient Japanese cars The auto industry, however, did not stand still. In the 1970s, the Japanese created a new blue ocean, challenging the U.S. automobile industry with small, efficient cars. Instead of following the implicit industry logic, the bigger the better, and focusing on luxuries, the Japanese altered the conventional logic, pursuing ruthless quality, small size, and the new utility of highly gas-efficient cars. When the oil crisis occurred in the 1970s, U.S. consumers flocked to fuel-efficient, robust Japanese cars made by Honda, Toyota, and Nissan, then called Datsun. Almost overnight, the Japanese became heroes in consumers' minds. Their compact, fuel-efficient cars created a new blue ocean of opportunity, and again demand soared. With the big three focused on benchmarking and matching one another, none had taken the initiative to produce functional, compact, fuel-efficient cars, even though they did see the market potential for such vehicles. Hence, instead of creating a new blue ocean, the big three were dragged into a new round of competitive benchmarking, only this time with the Japanese. They began to invest heavily in the production of smaller, fuel-efficient vehicles. Nevertheless, the big three were still hit by a dive in car sales, with aggregate losses mounting to $4 billion in 1980. Chrysler, the little brother among the big three, suffered the hardest hit and narrowly escaped bankruptcy by virtue of a government bailout. The Japanese car producers had been so effective at creating and capturing this blue ocean that the U.S. automakers found it hard to make a real comeback. Their competitiveness and long-run viability were thrown into serious question by industry experts across the world. Chrysler's Minivan 
Fast forward to 1984. A beleaguered Chrysler on the edge of bankruptcy unveiled the minivan, creating a new blue ocean in the auto industry. The minivan broke the boundary between car and van, creating an entirely new type of vehicle. Smaller than the traditional van and yet more spacious than the station wagon, the minivan was exactly what the nuclear family needed to hold the entire family plus its bikes, dogs, and other necessities. And the minivan was easier to drive than a truck or van. Built on the Chrysler K-car chassis, the minivan drove like a car but provided more interior room and could still fit in the family garage. Chrysler, however, was not the first to work on this concept. Ford and GM had had the minivan on their drawing boards for years, but they had worried that the design would cannibalize their own station wagons. Undoubtedly, they passed a golden opportunity to Chrysler. Within its first year, the minivan became Chrysler's best-selling vehicle, helping the company regain its position as one of the big three auto manufacturers. Within three years, Chrysler gained $1.5 billion from the minivan's introduction alone. The success of the minivan ignited the sports utility vehicle, SUV, boom in the 1990s, which expanded the blue ocean Chrysler had unlocked. Built on a truck chassis, the SUV continued the progression from car to utility truck. First designed for off-road driving and towing boat trailers, the SUV became wildly popular with young families for its car-like handling, increased passenger and cargo space over the minivan, and comfortable interiors combined with the increased functionality of four-wheel drive, towing capabilities, and safety. By 1998, total sales of new light trucks, minivans, SUVs, and pickups reached 7.5 million, nearly matching the 8.2 million new car sales. As history reveals, GM and Chrysler were established players when they created Blue Oceans. For the most part, however, these Blue Oceans were not triggered by technological innovations. The underlying technology had been around. Even Ford's revolutionary assembly line can be traced to the U.S. meatpacking industry. The attractiveness of the auto industry was continuously rising and falling and rising again, driven to no small extent by Blue Ocean's strategic moves. The same is true for the profitable growth trends of companies in the industry. Companies' profit and growth were linked in no small way to the Blue Oceans they created or failed to create. Almost all these companies are remembered for the Blue Oceans they have created across time. Ford, for example, has suffered significantly at times, but its brand still stands out largely for the Model T it created some 100 years ago. The Computer Industry Let's now turn to the computer industry, which supplies a central component of work environments across the globe. The U.S. computer industry traces back to 1890, when Herman Hollerith invented the punch card tabulating machine, to shorten the process of data recording and analysis for the U.S. Census. Hollerith's tabulator completed the census tabulations five years sooner than the preceding census. Soon after, Hollerith left the census office to form Tabulating Machine Company, TMC, which sold its tabulators to U.S. and foreign government agencies. At the time, there was no real market for Hollerith's tabulators in business settings, where data processing was accomplished with pencils and ledgers that were easy to use, inexpensive, and accurate. Although Hollerith's tabulator was very fast and accurate, it was expensive and difficult to use, and it required continuous upkeep. 
Facing new competition after the expiration of his patent and frustrated after the U.S. government dropped TMC due to its steep prices, Hollerith sold the company, which was then merged with two other companies to form CTR in 1911. The Tabulating Machine In 1914, CTR's tabulating business remained small and unprofitable. In an attempt to turn the company around, CTR turned to Thomas Watson, a former executive at National Cash Register Company, for help. Watson recognized that there was enormous untapped demand for tabulators to help businesses improve their inventory and accounting practices. Yet he also realized that the cumbersome new technology was too expensive and complicated for businesses when their pencils and ledgers worked just fine. In a strategic move that would launch the computer industry, Watson combined the strengths of the tabulator with the ease and lower costs of pencils and ledgers. Under Watson, CTR's tabulators were simplified and modularized, and the company began to offer on-site maintenance and user education and oversight. Customers would get the speed and efficiency of the tabulator without the need to hire specialists to train employees or technicians to fix the machines when they broke down. Next, Watson decreed that tabulators would be leased and not sold, an innovation that helped establish a new pricing model for the tabulating machine business. On the one hand, it allowed businesses to avoid large capital expenditures while giving them the flexibility to upgrade as tabulators improved. On the other hand, it gave CTR a recurring revenue stream while precluding customers from buying used machines from one another. Within six years, the firm's revenues more than tripled. By the mid-1920s, CTR held 85% of the tabulating market in the United States. In 1924, to reflect the company's growing international presence, Watson changed CTR's name to International Business Machines Corp., IBM. The blue ocean of tabulators was unlocked. The Electronic Computer Skip ahead 30 years to 1952. Remington Rand delivered the UNIVAC, the world's first commercial electronic computer, to the Census Bureau. Yet that year only three UNIVACs were sold. A blue ocean was not in sight until IBM's Watson, this time his son, Thomas Watson, Jr., would see the untapped demand in what looked like a small, lackluster market. Watson, Jr. realized the role electronic computers could play in business and pushed IBM to meet the challenge. In 1953, IBM introduced the IBM 650, the first intermediate-sized computer for business use. Recognizing that if businesses were going to use the electronic computer, they wouldn't want a complicated machine and would pay only for the computing power they would use, IBM had made the IBM 650 much simpler to use and less powerful than the Univac, and it priced the machine at only $200,000, compared with the Univac's $1 million price tag. As a result, by the end of the 1950s, IBM had captured 85% of the business electronic computer market. Revenues almost tripled between 1952 and 1959, from $412 million to $1.16 billion. IBM's expansion of the Blue Ocean was greatly accentuated in 1964 with the introduction of the System 360, the first large family of computers to use interchangeable software, peripheral equipment, and service packages. 
It was a bold departure from the monolithic one-size-fits-all mainframe. Later in 1969, IBM changed the way computers were sold. Rather than offer hardware, services, and software exclusively in packages, IBM unbundled the components and offered them for sale individually. Unbundling gave birth to the multi-billion dollar software and services industries. Today, IBM is the world's largest computer services company, and it remains the world's largest computer manufacturer. The Personal Computer The computer industry continued its evolution through the 1960s and 1970s. IBM, Digital Equipment Corporation, DEC, Sperry, and others that had jumped into the computer industry expanded operations globally and improved and extended product lines to add peripherals and service markets. Yet in 1978, when the major computer manufacturers were intent on building bigger, more powerful machines for the business market, Apple Computer Inc. created an entirely new market space with its Apple II home computer. However, contrary to conventional wisdom, the Apple was not the first personal computer on the market. Two years earlier, Micro Instrumentation and Telemetry Systems, MITS, had unveiled the Altair 8800. The Altair was released with high expectations in computer hobbyist circles. Business Week quickly called MITS the IBM of home computers. Yet MITS did not create a blue ocean. Why? The machine had no monitor, no permanent memory, only 256 characters of temporary memory, no software, and no keyboard. To enter data, users manipulated switches on the front of the box, and program results were displayed in a pattern of flashing lights on the front panel. Unsurprisingly, no one saw much of a market for such difficult-to-use home computers. Expectations were so low that in that same year, Ken Olson, president of Digital Equipment, famously said, There is no reason for any individual to have a computer in their home. Two years later, the Apple II would make Olson eat his words, creating a blue ocean of home computing. Based largely on existing technology, the Apple II offered a solution with an all-in-one design in a plastic casing, including the keyboard, power supply, and graphics that was easy to use. The Apple II came with software ranging from games to business programs such as the Apple Writer Word Processor and the VisiCalc Spreadsheet, making the computer accessible to the mass of buyers. Apple changed the way people thought about computers. Computers were no longer products for technological geeks. They became, like the Model T before them, a staple of the American household. Only two years after the birth of the Apple II, Apple sales were more than 200,000 units a year, with Apple placed on the Fortune 500 list at three years of age, an unprecedented feat. In 1980, some two dozen firms sold 724,000 personal computers, bringing in more than $1.8 billion. By the next year, 20 other companies entered the market, and sales doubled to 1.4 million units, racking in almost $3 billion. Like a stalking horse, IBM waited out the first couple of years to study the market and the technology and to plan the launch of its home computer. In 1982, IBM dramatically expanded the blue ocean of home computing by offering a far more open architecture that allowed other parties to write software and develop peripherals. 
By creating a standardized operating system for which outsiders could create the software and peripheral components, IBM was able to keep its cost and price low while offering customers greater utility. The company's scale and scope advantages allowed it to price its PC at a level acceptable to the mass of buyers. During its first year, IBM sold 200,000 PCs, nearly matching its five-year projection. By 1983, consumers had bought 1.3 million IBM PCs. Compaq PC Servers With corporations across the United States buying and installing PCs throughout their organizations, there was a growing need to connect PCs for simple but important tasks such as sharing files and printers. The business computer industry spawned by the IBM 650, and jumped into by HP, DEC, and Sequent, to name a few, offered high-end enterprise systems to run corporations' critical missions, as well as numerous operating systems and application software. But these machines were too expensive and complex to justify handling simple but important needs, such as file and printer sharing. This was especially true in small to mid-sized companies that needed to share printers and files but did not yet require the huge investment of a complex mini-computer architecture. In 1992, Compaq changed all that by effectively creating the blue ocean of the PC server industry with its launch of the Prosignia, a radically simplified server that was optimized for the most commonly used functions of file and printer sharing. It eliminated interoperability with a host of operating systems, ranging from SCO Unix to OS3 to DOS, that were extraneous to these basic functions. The new PC server gave buyers twice a mini-computer's file and print-sharing capability and speed at one-third the price. As for Compaq, the dramatically simplified machines translated into much lower manufacturing costs. Compaq's creation of the Prosignia and three subsequent offerings in the PC server industry not only fueled PC sales but also grew the PC server industry into a $3.8 billion industry in less than four years. Dell Computer In the mid-1990s, Dell Computer Corporation created another blue ocean in the computer industry. Traditionally, computer manufacturers competed on offering faster computers having more features and software. Dell, however, challenged this industry logic by changing the purchasing and delivering experiences of buyers. With its direct sales to customers, Dell was able to sell its PCs for 40% less than IBM dealers while still making money. Direct sales further appealed to customers because Dell offered unprecedented delivery time. For example, the time it took from order to customer delivery at Dell was four days, compared with its competitor's average of more than ten weeks. Moreover, through Dell's online and telephone ordering system, customers were given the option to customize their machines to their liking. In the meantime, the built-to-order model allowed Dell to significantly reduce inventory costs. Today, Dell is the undisputed market leader in PC sales, with revenues skyrocketing from $5.3 billion in 1995 to $35.5 billion in 2003. Its U.S. market share grew from 2% to more than 30% in the same period. As with the auto industry, the blue oceans in the computer industry were not unleashed by technological innovations per se, but by linking technology to elements valued by buyers. 
as in the case of the IBM 650 and the compact PC server, the value innovation often rested on simplifying the technology. We also see industry incumbents, CTR, IBM, Compaq, launching blue oceans as much as we see new entrants such as Apple and Dell. Each blue ocean has reinforced the originating company's standing brand name and has led to a surge not only in its profitable growth, but in the profitable growth of the computer industry overall. The Movie Theater Industry Now let's turn to the movie theater industry, which offers a way for many of us to relax after work or on weekends. The U.S. movie theater industry can be traced back to 1893, when Thomas Edison unveiled the kinetoscope, a wooden cabinet inside which light was projected through a reel of film. Viewers saw the action through a peephole one at a time, and the performance was called a peep show. Two years later, Edison's staff developed a projecting kinetoscope which showed motion pictures on a screen. The projecting kinetoscope, however, did not take off in any meaningful way. The clips, each several minutes long, were introduced between vaudeville acts and at theaters. The aim was to lift the value of live entertainment performances, the focus of the theater industry, rather than to provide a discrete entertainment form. The technology was there for the movie theater industry to ignite, but the idea to create a blue ocean had not yet been planted. Nickelodeons Harry Davis changed all that by opening the first Nickelodeon theater in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1905. The Nickelodeon is widely credited with launching the movie theater industry in the United States, creating a huge blue ocean. Consider the differences. Although most Americans belonged to the working class at the beginning of the 20th century, the theater industry until then concentrated on offering live entertainment, such as theater, operas, and vaudeville, to the social elite. With the average family earning only $12 a week, live entertainment simply wasn't an option. It was too expensive. Average ticket prices for an opera were $2, and vaudeville was 50 cents. For the majority, theater was too serious. With little education, the theater or opera just wasn't appealing to the working class. It was also inconvenient. Productions played only a few times a week, and with most theaters located in the well-heeled parts of the city, they were difficult to get to for the mass of working-class people. When it came to entertainment, most Americans were left in the dark. In contrast, the price of admission to Davis's Nickelodeon Theater was five cents, thus explaining the name. Davis kept the price at a nickel by stripping the theater venue to its bare essentials, benches and the screen, and placing his theaters in lower-rent working-class neighborhoods. Next, he focused on volume and convenience, opening his theaters at eight in the morning and playing reels continuously until midnight. The Nickelodeons were fun, playing slapstick comedies accessible to most people regardless of their education, language, or age. Working-class people flocked to Nickelodeons, which entertained some 7,000 customers per day. In 1907, the Saturday Evening Post reported that daily attendance at Nickelodeons exceeded two million. Soon Nickelodeons set up shop across the country. By 1914, the United States had 18,000 Nickelodeons with seven million daily admissions. The Blue Ocean had grown into a half-billion-dollar industry. The Palace Theaters as the Nickelodeon's Blue Ocean reached its peak, in 1914, Samuel Roxy Rothapfel 
set out to bring the appeal of motion pictures to the emerging middle and upper classes by opening the country's first palace theater in New York City. Until that point, Rothapfel had owned a number of Nickelodeons in the United States and was best known for turning around struggling theaters across the country. Unlike Nickelodeons, which were considered lowbrow and simplistic, Rothapfel's palace theaters were elaborate affairs, with extravagant chandeliers, mirrored hallways, and grand entranceways. With valet parking, plush love seats, and longer films with theatrical plots, these theaters made going to the movies an event worthy of theater or opera-goers, but at an affordable price. The picture palaces were a commercial success. Between 1914 and 1922, 4,000 new palace theaters opened in the United States. Movie-going became an increasingly important entertainment event for Americans of all economic levels. As Roxy pointed out, giving the people what they want is fundamentally and disastrously wrong. The people don't know what they want. Give them something better. Palace theaters effectively combined the viewing environment of opera houses with the viewing contents of Nickelodeon's films to unlock a new blue ocean in the cinema industry and attract a whole new mass of moviegoers, the upper and middle classes. As the wealth of the nation increased and Americans headed for the suburbs to fulfill the dream of a house with a picket fence, a chicken in every pot, and a car in every garage, the limitations of further growth in the palace theater concept began to be felt in the late 1940s. Suburbs, unlike major cities or metropolitan areas, could not support the large size and opulent interiors of the palace theater concept. The result of competitive evolution was the emergence of small theaters in suburban locations running one movie per week. Although the small theaters were cost leaders compared with palace theaters, they failed to capture people's imaginations, they gave people no special feeling of a night out, and their success depended solely on the quality of the film being played. If a film was unsuccessful, customers saw no reason to come, and the theater owner lost money. With the industry increasingly taken on a has-been status, its profitable growth was flagging. The Multiplex Yet once again the industry was set on a new profitable growth trajectory through the creation of a new blue ocean. In 1963, Stan Derwood undertook a strategic move that turned the industry on its head. Derwood's father had opened his family's first movie theater in Kansas City in the 1920s, and Stan Derwood revitalized the movie theater industry with the creation of the first multiplex in a Kansas City shopping center. The multiplex was an instant hit. On the one hand, the multiplex gave viewers a greater choice of films. On the other, with different sized theaters in one place, theater owners could make adjustments to meet varying demands for movies, thereby spreading their risk and keeping costs down. As a result, Durwood's company, American Multi-Cinema, Inc., AMC, grew from a small-town theater to become the second-largest movie company in the nation as the blue ocean of the multiplex spread across America. The Megaplex The launch of the multiplex created a blue ocean of new profitable growth in the industry, but by the 1980s, the spread of video cassette recorders and satellite and cable television had reduced movie attendance. To make matters worse, in an attempt to capture a greater share of a shrinking market, theater owners split their theaters into smaller and smaller viewing rooms so that they could show more features. Unwittingly, they undermined one of the industry's distinctive strengths over home entertainment, large screens. 
With first-run movies available on cable and video cassette only weeks after release, the benefit of paying more money to see movies on a slightly larger screen was marginal. The movie theater industry fell into a steep decline. In 1995, AMC again recreated the movie theater industry by introducing the first 24-screen megaplex in the United States. Unlike the multiplexes, which were often cramped, dingy, and unspectacular, the megaplex had stadium seating for unobstructed views and comfortable easy chairs, and it offered more films and superior sight and sound. Despite these improved offerings, the megaplex's operating costs are still lower than the multiplexes. This is because the megaplex's location outside city centers, the key cost factor, is much cheaper. Its size gives it economies in purchasing and operations and more leverage with film distributors. And with 24 screens playing every available movie on the market, the place and not the movie becomes the draw. In the late 1990s, average per-customer revenues at AMC megaplexes were 8.8% above those of the average multiplex theater. The cinema clearance zones of movie theaters, the radius of the area from which people will come to the cinema, jumped from 2 miles in the mid-1990s to 5 miles for AMC's megaplex. Between 1995 and 2001, overall motion picture attendance grew from 1.26 billion to 1.49 billion. Megaplexes constituted only 15% of U.S. movie screens, but they accounted for 38% of all box office revenues. The success of the Blue Ocean created by AMC caused other industry players to imitate it. Too many megaplexes were built in too short a time, however, and many of them had closed by 2000 because of a slowing economy. Again, the industry is ripe for a new Blue Ocean to be created. This is only a sketch of the American movie theater industry, but the same general patterns appear as in the other examples. This has not been a perpetually attractive industry. There has not been a perpetually excellent company. The creation of blue oceans has been a key driving factor in a company's and the industry's profitable growth trajectory, with blue oceans being created here mainly by incumbents such as AMC and Palace Theaters. As history reveals, AMC created a blue ocean in the U.S. movie theater industry, first with the multiplex and then with the megaplex, twice resetting the course of development for the entire industry and twice bringing its own profitability and growth to a new level. At the heart of these blue oceans was not technology innovation per se, but value-driven innovation, what we call value innovation. Looking across the sketches of these three industries, we find that whether or not a company can attain sustained profitable growth depends largely on whether it can continuously stay in the forefront during consecutive rounds of blue ocean creation. Lasting excellence is scarcely achievable for any company. To date, no company has been able to lead journeys into blue oceans continuously over the long run. However, companies with powerful names are often those that have been capable of reinventing themselves by repeatedly creating new market space. In this sense, there have been no perpetually excellent companies up till now, but companies can hope to maintain excellence by adhering to excellent strategic practice. With marginal deviations, the pattern of blue ocean creation exemplified by these three representative industries is consistent with what we observed in the other industries in our study. Appendix B. Value Innovation. A Reconstructionist View of Strategy. 
There are basically two distinct views on how industry structure is related to strategic actions of industrial players. The structuralist view of strategy has its roots in industrial organization, I.O., economics. The model of industrial organization analysis proposes a structure-conduct performance paradigm, which suggests a causal flow from market structure to conduct and performance. Market structure, given by supply and demand conditions, shapes sellers' and buyers' conduct, which in turn determines end performance. System-wide changes are induced by factors that are external to the market structure, such as fundamental changes in basic economic conditions and technological breakthroughs. The reconstructionist view of strategy, on the other hand, is built on the theory of endogenous growth. The theory traces back to Joseph A. Schumpeter's initial observation that the forces that change economic structure and industry landscapes can come from within the system. Schumpeter argues that innovation can happen endogenously and that its main source is the creative entrepreneur. Schumpeterian innovation is still black-boxed, however, because it is the product of the ingenuity of entrepreneurs and cannot be reproduced systematically. Recently, the New Growth Theory made advances on this front by showing that innovation can be replicable endogenously via an understanding of the patterns or recipes behind innovation. In essence, this theoretical advancement separated the recipe for innovation, or the pattern of knowledge and ideas behind it, from Schumpeter's lone entrepreneur, opening the way for the systematic reproduction of innovation. However, despite this important advance, we still lack an understanding of what those recipes or patterns are. Absent this, knowledge and ideas cannot be deployed in action to produce innovation and growth at the firm level. The Reconstructionist view takes off where the New Growth Theory left off. Building on the New Growth Theory, the Reconstructionist view suggests how knowledge and ideas are deployed in the process of creation to produce endogenous growth for the firm. In particular, it proposes that such a process of creation can occur in any organization at any time by the cognitive reconstruction of existing data and market elements in a fundamentally new way. These two views, the structuralist and the reconstructionist, have important implications for how companies act on strategy. The structuralist view, or environmental determinism, often leads to competition-based strategic thinking. Taking market structure as given, it drives companies to try to carve out a defensible position against the competition in the existing market space. To sustain themselves in the marketplace, practitioners of strategy focus on building advantages over the competition, usually by assessing what competitors do and striving to do it better. Here, grabbing a bigger share of the market is seen as a zero-sum game in which one company's gain is achieved at another company's loss. Hence, competition, the supply side of the equation, becomes the defining variable of strategy. Such strategic thinking leads firms to divide industries into attractive and unattractive ones and to decide accordingly whether or not to enter. After it is in an industry, a firm chooses a distinctive cost or differentiation position that best matches its internal systems and capabilities to counter the competition. Here, cost and value are seen as trade-offs. Because the total profit level of the industry is also determined exogenously by structural factors, firms principally seek to capture and redistribute wealth instead of creating wealth.
They focus on dividing up the Red Ocean, where growth is increasingly limited. To Reconstructionist eyes, however, the strategic challenge looks very different. Recognizing that structure and market boundaries exist only in managers' minds, practitioners who hold this view do not let existing market structures limit their thinking. To them, extra demand is out there, largely untapped. The crux of the problem is how to create it. This, in turn, requires a shift of attention from supply to demand, from a focus on competing to a focus on value innovation, that is, the creation of innovative value to unlock new demand. With this new focus in mind, firms can hope to accomplish the journey of discovery by looking systematically across established boundaries of competition and reordering existing elements in different markets to reconstruct them into a new market space where a new level of demand is generated. In the Reconstructionist view, there is scarcely any attractive or unattractive industry per se because the level of industry attractiveness can be altered through companies' conscientious efforts of reconstruction. As market structure is changed in the reconstruction process, so are best practice rules of the game. Competition in the old game is therefore rendered irrelevant. By stimulating the demand side of the economy, the strategy of value innovation expands existing markets and creates new ones. Value innovators achieve a leap in value by creating new wealth rather than at the expense of competitors in the traditional sense. Such a strategy therefore allows firms to largely play a non-zero-sum game with high payoff possibilities. How then does reconstruction, such as what we see in Cirque du Soleil, differ from the combination and recombination that have been discussed in the innovation literature? Schumpeter, for example, sees innovation as a new combination of productive means. We have seen in the example of Cirque du Soleil a focus on the demand side, whereas recombination is about recombining existing technologies or productive means, often focusing on the supply side. The basic building blocks for reconstruction are buyer value elements that reside across existing industry boundaries. They are not technologies nor methods of production. By focusing on the supply side, recombination tends to seek an innovative solution to the existing problem. Looking at the demand side, in contrast, reconstruction breaks away from the cognitive bounds set by existing rules of competition. It focuses on redefining the existing problem itself. Cirque du Soleil, for example, is not about offering a better circus by recombining existing knowledge or technologies about acts and performances. Rather, it is about reconstructing existing buyer value elements to create a new form of entertainment that offers the fun and thrill of the circus with the intellectual sophistication of the theater. Redefining the problem usually leads to changes in the entire system and hence a shift in strategy, whereas recombination may end up finding new solutions to subsystem activities that serve to reinforce an existing strategic position. Reconstruction reshapes the boundary and the structure of an industry and creates a blue ocean of new market space. Recombination, on the other hand, tends to maximize technological possibilities to discover innovative solutions. What you know has the ability to change somebody's life. Right now, it's being typed into Google thousands of times per second. It's being liked on Facebook. It's being hashtag goals on Instagram. And people are sitting in a classroom paying $50,000 per year or more to learn just a fraction of what you already know. Now, what if that thing that you love so much didn't have to be just a hobby? 
What if it was your career, your business? What if people would actually pay you for your advice? You might be the one that could save a marriage, repair a family, change the course of someone's health, inspire an idea, expert secrets to help you to find your voice, build a movement, and become your career. Get your free copy of Expert Secrets now because your message matters.